As I said, we're beginning a a new seven-week series about these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, The Apostle John, towards the end of his life, receives this vision while he's on this island just off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea, the Greek island of Patmos. And we're going to look at these uh, churches one after another, beginning with chapter 2, verse 1. And so in your pew Bible, that's 1028. be helpful for you just to look and read along and then have it open. And, and if you want to just read ahead over the next seven weeks, we'll just be taking these one at a time. So the first one here, uh, the church at, at Ephesus, this mother church, it's the main city and Sort of it feeds all these other suburb cities, and so appropriately, it's the first church that's addressed by the Apostle John. And so let's stand together as we read these seven verses. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's Word. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, the the letter we refer to as Ephesians. At the same time, he was writing the letter that we just finished studying, the book uh, or letter of Colossians. And he wrote those at the same time. He was uh, put in prison. He had planted this church at Ephesus. And sometime later, he was put in prison in a Roman prison cell around 62 A.D., And while he's in this prison cell, seemingly getting nothing done, he writes these letters. And we're grateful for them now today. And so he writes this this letter back to the church at Ephesus. He's also writing a letter back to the church at Colossae. And you can read about him planting the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and 20. And again, the, the, the church at Ephesus is the uh, metropolis. It's the m- major city. It's the one that, that feeds all the, uh, the traffic, the, the tourism, the trade from uh, the east and the west. So 
you're coming out of Greece or you're coming out of Europe and you're landing at this port city of Ephesus or you're coming from the, the west and you're coming to bring your goods to the port city to distribute. So it's a major artery and it's sort of the mother church of all the other churches in the region. And we know that this guy named Epaphras had learned from the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. And then he went back to his hometown, this little town called Colossae, and he established a church there. But we also know that uh, this little suburb church in Colossae isn't the only place that Ephesus planted a church. In the book of Revelation, we see that there are six others, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So geographically, the port city of Ephesus is sort of at the tip of uh, Asia Minor or the tip of modern-day Turkey, and sort of in like a semicircle around Ephesus are these other churches that are being addressed, and the Apostle John is, is directly addressing each one of these seven churches. Now, it's important to, to understand the timing. When you move from these, these letters, Ephesus or Colossians, you're moving from about 60 or 62 A.D., and then when you come to the book of Revelation, you're moving to about 90 or 95 A.D. So you're moving forward in time about 30 years after the Apostle Paul has passed away and has obviously already planted these churches. The, 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 at the time, in 95 A.D., Domitian was the uh, Roman emperor. And at that time, he established what's called emperor worship. So Caesar is the Lord. Caesar is God. And he wanted to be referred to as Lord God. And he was even married, and he required his wife to call him Lord God. You can imagine how that might go over in your home. The last person who's going to call me Lord God is my wife. So he had a big ego, and he wanted people to worship him, and he, he thought of himself as divine. And in fact, in the city of Ephesus, right at the port, there's a, a 30-foot statue of him, this marble statue, huge statue, and he's got his fist raised in the air as if to say, when you're coming into Ephesus, I need you to know that Domitian is Lord God. You sail in, you can't miss this huge statue. Every knee shall bow, everybody shall say, this person, this man, he's the king, he's the Lord. So when John came to Ephesus, the Apostle John ends his ministry in Ephesus, and he teaches that there's another name that is above every other name. He's not well received by the authorities. And so eventually their hostility grows and the authorities ship him off to exile or really imprisonment on this small, small island just off the coast we know as the Greek island of Patmos. While he's there, he receives this revelation. You can read about it in chapter 1. And it's really the, it's not the book of revelations, which a lot of people say. It's not plural. It's just the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. The true king is coming back, and John is seeing this, and then he's writing this message to us, but particularly to the, the seven churches. So in this opening chapter, it's directly addressed to these seven churches, and, and not surprisingly, John starts with Ephesus. He moves out to these suburb cities, and these are real cities that have these real problems. 
or these churches in these cities have real problems and they have real victories. Uh, but the churches aren't just the actual churches. They're also representative churches. So there's seven churches and it's meant to say churches like this all across time are going to exist. Churches are going to have certain strengths, certain weaknesses. And so the message rings out from these seven churches all the way 2,000 years later to us. We sit here. We have our own strengths and weaknesses. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today. One pastor describes these seven churches this way. Ephesus is the doctrinally sound navel-gazing church. Smyrna is the vibrant but fearful church. Pergamum is the witnessing yet undiscerning church. Thyatira is the loving but over-tolerant church. Sardis is the church of the whitewashed tombs. Philadelphia is the struggling strong church. Laodicea is the affluent apathetic church. So however you think of how they're titled, you'll get a chance to read through them and think for yourselves uh, but as we listen, I thought, okay, how, how, what's the best way to listen to these messages? And here's my charge to you in terms of listening over the next seven weeks. I would want you to pay most attention to, to what you need to hear rather than what you think someone else needs to hear. So often it's easy for me, other people, to sit and go, this is a great message for I've got to send this right away to the church down the street or the person next door. And so I would want you to resist that and to really just pay attention with your own ears. And, and it's so hard to do because if you're doctrinally minded, you're going to be prone to hear about the church that is weak in doctrine. And you're going to say, see, that's the problem. And, and that church or, or this group, they need, they need that. If we just, if, if everybody was this way, then we wouldn't have the problems we have. Or if you were somebody who was particularly concerned about the church being engaged in the culture. And then you find the church who's withdrawn from the culture, you say, see, that's the problem. The church has got to be back in the culture. And so when you do that, you're always listening with somebody else's ears. And I think Jesus would want to say, no, I have a message for this church. I have a message for you. So listen as a church body, as Christ Community Church, and also listen as an individual. How is God maybe addressing you and your relationship with him? John begins addressing each church in the same way. You see it in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in. There's a lot of controversy when you read the commentaries. Who is this angel? Some people think it's the pastor. So he's referring to the pastor of the church. He's the one who's, who's bringing the light from the pulpit to the congregation. He's the angel. Some people think it's an actual guardian angel that somehow in the spiritual realm there's an angel that's associated with or protecting or guiding in some way each individual church. The word angel can mean messenger, so some people think it's messengers came to visit John in exile. He's writing back to these particular people. It's, it's uncertain as to who that person is, and I don't think that's really critical in your understanding. What's really critical is understanding who the message is from, who's delivering the message, and there's no question about that. The person who's delivering the message is Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who's being identified here as the one who's giving these words. And in each time, he's described differently. Chapter 2, verse 1 again, 
He is the one who holds the seven stars and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the stars are these messengers, maybe the ministers. They're the ones that are delivering the light. That the golden lampstands are the, the churches themselves. And he, Christ, is walking among them and he holds them in his hand. He's the light of the world. He holds the people who give the light of the world away. He's in charge of them. And so he gets to do what he wants with each one. And then notice he's walking among them. Very important phrase. He's not some sort of distant landlord. Okay, you guys are taking rent up here at, in, at Christ Community Church in Wilmington, and I'm some distance away, and every once in a while I sort of just drop by. No, he's walking among his people. He's standing in the middle of his church. He's the one who's doing this 360 evaluation of the church. He, he says, I can look at the church and then notice the language. He says, I know. He doesn't say, hey, I heard a report about your church. He says, no, I know your church. I know you. Why? Because I'm walking among you. I don't need information from the outside. I know it from the inside because I'm on the inside. And for example, the church at Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, uh, You have the reputation of being alive, but I know. I know you're dead. See, when people come to your church, they think, Wow, this is a vibrant church. They've got a great uh, worship team. They've got some good ministry, good programs. They've got a good preacher. They've got, they've got all the things that just from the outside in you would say, they look like they're alive, but I know I'm inside and it's dead. So he knows whatever your condition is, he knows. Whatever our condition is as a church, he knows. And so we want to we wanna listen in. We want to be like the one who has an ear, let him hear. He's the one who knows. He's got this x-ray vision. And we can't even see it in among ourselves. So he comes in and says, hey, let me examine the, the heartbeat of this church. Let me examine your own, your own heartbeat. And so Jesus walks among the church at Ephesus, and this is what he sees. Let's look at that together. First, they're tough and they're truthful. They're tough and they're truthful. Look at toil and endurance. This is what he sees. He says, I know, I know this work. It's toilsome and it, it patience endurance. In the Greek, it means you're working to complete exhaustion. You're, you're never giving up. You're never giving in. You're always trying to, to bear up. You're, you're tough. You're in a very difficult situation. Uh, but you're the one who's, Who's hanging in there? You're you're not just this passive group of people who gather on Sunday and then say, "Well, gosh, twelve, I got to go," and then I just live my own life however I want. No, this is a group of people who are tough. They're involved in the culture. They're involved in the community. They're involved in understanding what God wants and trying to act on that in some way. And notice in verse three, they also seem to have the right aim. They're, they're bearing underneath, underneath these circumstances, but notice what it says. They're not glory hounds. They're not chasing a name for themselves. In fact, it says, no, I'm not trying to bring the spotlight on myself. I'm trying to bring the spotlight on God's name. 
So not only are they tough, they seem to have the right aim. It's not about making our church well-known. It's about making God's name well-known. And even though this church in Ephesus, small as it may be, buried in this pagan culture, imagine being in a culture where Domitian is sort of the, the mighty monument that everybody looks at every day, and you're buried in this pagan culture, Jesus looking at your church and saying, I know you're tough. I know you're willing to take your stand. You're standing against this cultural constant tide, and you're standing there like this rock that's not going to be moved. Second, they're truthful. See this? They tested those who called themselves apostles and found them to be false. If you go back to Acts chapter 20, where Paul established the church at the, the end of, of, of a trip through there, he comes to the elders and say, hey, I'm leaving. And I want you to know that I've done everything I can to preach the gospel to you. But I'm going away and now you, these leaders, these elders, you're going to have to step in and you're going to be sort of the fence that protects the church. And he gives this warning in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know after I leave... Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. From your own number, men will arise and distort the truth and draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And so we know this is exactly what happened. Because in Revelation here in chapter 2, these false apostles tried to come in. They're not just people from the outside. They're, they're calling themselves apostles. They're the wolves in sheep's clothing. They're saying, hey, we believe what you believe. But somehow they've distorted the truth. They look good. They sound right. But, but something's missing. And this group of elders say, no, we tested these people. We didn't just have them come to our pulpit and say whatever they want and everybody can think whatever they want. No, we tested them. We found out what they really believe. And somehow in this test, they thought, you know, something's something's wrong. Something's twisted about their message. They look like apostles, but really they're they're false. I don't know if you know what a, a multimeter is. Anybody know what a multimeter is? Probably seen it if you have an electrician come to your house. It's a little meter. It's got a little gauge on it. And out of coming from the gauge are these two prongs. And you use it to test and see if an outlet is working or not. So instead of licking your finger and sticking your finger in the outlet, you have this electrician who puts these two probes in, and the meter goes off and tells you if there's power coming to this particular outlet or not. And you could say the elders here at Ephesus, they have a good spiritual multimeter. So when somebody comes in who's going to be an apostle, a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, they stick the probes in. And they find out if they have real power. And apparently some false prophets, some false apostles have come in. And these people, strong, tough, truthful people, they stick their probe in and say, hey, no power. You're missing the gospel in some way. So, no, you're out. We've got to protect our people. So these are tough, very truth-minded people. And then in verse 6, you'll notice Jesus specifically mentions a group of people that both he hates and this church hates, the the Nicolaitans. And it's mentioned again in chapter 2, verse 15. Now, the Nicolaitans, which we'll unpack a little bit more in a couple of weeks, most scholars think the primary heresy of the Nicolaitans 
was separating your spiritual life from your physical life. They're not quite sure, but they think that's probably what has to do with it, is that you can have some sort of pure spiritual life, and it doesn't really connect to what you do with your body. There's a separation between soul from body. And think about the dangers of this teaching. That somehow your soul is separated from what you do with your body. Think about how that might be played out. You can have a pure, intimate relationship with God, and you can do whatever you want with your body. Because there's no connection according to these Nicolaitans. See, I I come in and I can say the affirmation. I can sing the songs. I can repeat the creed. I can pray with my hands folded. I can open up and read the Bible because it's feeding my spiritual soul. But I don't want the Bible to come in and inform anything about my sexual ethics. Why? Because it's disconnected. See, that's a very enticing message that I can, I can feed my flesh whatever it desires and I can still hold on to this pure relationship with God. Who wouldn't want to sign up for that? Oh, sign me up. I can do whatever I want and I can still have this wonderful relationship with God every hand up. But you, you, we know from the Apostle Paul, remember he's saying, here's this great doctrine, and then he transitions, and remember, remember what he says? You've got to put some things on, and you've got to take some things off. So it does intersect your life. But these false apostles are trying to come in and say, no, it's okay. Whatever you do with your body, nobody cares about that. It's really your soul we care about. And these leaders in Ephesus, they stuck in the probes and said, no, no power there. That's not right according to the word of God. Stop here and make just a couple of observations. First of all, there are things Jesus hates. I think sometimes you can just get in your mind, Jesus is just a good buddy. You know, he just loves everything. Jesus is love, and there are things Jesus hates. And it's good to hate the things that Jesus hates. The second thing is that this situation sounds remarkably contemporary we live our church lives in a culture that's increasingly pagan increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel and and not just from the outside there's this rising tide from within the church to say ah it doesn't matter what you do with your sexuality what really matters is if you believe what the bible says Somehow trying to separate those two. See, there's a, that rising tide. And so what is it going to take for a church in Wilmington? What is it going to take for Christ Community Church to take its stand for the truth? It's going to take people who are tough. People who can take criticism and, and respond in a way that Jesus would want us to respond, whatever that may look like. It's going to have to be people who know the truth. They understand the difference between the truth and the lie. They have a good multimeter. So when they hear things, they say, hey, you know what? That's not right. There's no power in that. That's not what the Bible has to say. So it's going to take people who are, who are tough and who are truthful. 
And so we can make some application. You can make that for your own life, whether we're tough and whether we're truthful. Now, if you stop here, you would say, what a church. This is awesome. I mean, if we moved to Ephesus, you'd probably say, man, I'm probably going to be interested in going to that church. I mean, these people are tough. They're truthful. I want to be tougher. I want to know the truth. I want to stand against the cultural tide. So it's very attractive in that way. Uh, but somehow, um, Jesus sniffs something out, with something maybe that we wouldn't see, because he's doing this 360-degree evaluation, and he knows there's a serious problem. So when he comes into the church, he, he doesn't think everything looks healthy like I might think. He sniffs out like, hey, it looks healthy, but there's something rotten in here. The, the city of Ephesus was a port city. And much like Wilmington, North Carolina is a port city, in order to get to the port, you have to go up river. You don't just land on the shore. And so you come up the Cape Fear River and you end up, up in, in downtown Wilmington or the ports. Same with Ephesus. It's four miles up what's called the Keister River. And so you would come across the Aegean Sea, you'd get, in, get into the mouth of the river, you'd sail up the river four miles, and you'd see this city unfold, this great city. And all this economic vibrancy, this cultural tourism came through the city and this river. But what was beginning to happen, unbeknownst to the, the, the leaders, is silt was beginning to grow or uh, accumulate in the mouth of the river. Silt is fine sand and clay, sort of unrecognizable at first, but just slowly begins to build a deposit in the mouth of the river, and the flow begins to slow down. And that happened over years and years and years, and the river became a swamp. And the swamp then became just dry land. And so now, if you go on a tour of the Biblical lands, and you go to Ephesus. It's a lot. You can't see this. See it from. You can't see the sea from Ephesus, unless you're up on some some high point. Totally landlocked. Because these small deposits, imperceptible in the beginning, got laid in this this vibrant flow, and it became stagnant, and then it dried up. And it's a perfect picture of what I think is happening in the church at Ephesus. It's vibrant at some point, but, but some slow deposits are building up in this church. It's losing its vibrancy because it's, it's lost its first love. It's not only lost its first love with God, it's lost its first love among each other. They don't love God and they don't love each other like they did at the first. Something has kind of clogged up the arteries in the, in the churches is hemorrhaging life. Because it doesn't have any love anymore. So often is the case, the biggest, your biggest strength can be your biggest weaknesses. And we can't be exactly sure how this played out in the members of the church at Ephesus. But it's possible they became so focused on orthodoxy and doctrine. In a good, in a good, well-meaning way. I mean, we're buried in this pagan culture. We got to really understand what the truth is. We got to know what the truth is. But it's possible they got they they got buried in that, and it created some climate of suspicion. 
oh, he, he doesn't have it just right. She doesn't have it just right. And, and somehow, instead of lovingly trying to educate, maybe, I mean, I'm just guessing here, maybe it created some sort of climate of suspicion of people. And, oh, they're not right, so we got to just got to close the door on them relationally. we got to close the door on them in some way. And, of course, you can understand how it came from a good place, but in order to ensure everyone knew this historic, orthodox, conservative, evangelical creed, they they became a, a church devoid of love. One person made this quote, their theology had become crystal, become clear as ice and twice as cold. Reminds me of that passage you hear a lot of times at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love, what is love? And in the very beginning, it starts this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries of knowledge. If I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I have to the poor, if I'm a martyr, I surrender my body to the flames and don't have love, I've gained nothing. See, Jesus' evaluation of the church at Ephesus is the same evaluation that Paul's giving to the Corinthians. That all these things that seem like good things, this, this tough, truthful character, this ability to fathom all mysteries, this willingness to give all your possession to the poor, they're all like zeros. And if you add them all up, they're zero. Unless you have the number one of love in front of all of them. And see, then you make it a huge number. But if you take the one of love away and you have all these other zeros, then what you have as a church is zero. What you have as a person is zero. And I think one of the most surprising verses is verse 5. See, I, I have this against you, verse 4. So remember, part of the solution, therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And this is the surprising part. It's not just remember and, and go backwards and do the things you did at first. Here's what's surprising. If you don't do those things, I'm going to remove the lampstand. I'm going to remove the light. And I thought about that and I thought, Jesus somehow is saying this. I prefer no church than one who's doctrinally truthful but devoid of love. Wow. I would prefer to have no witness in the city if the only witness is one who's very truthful but has no love. So it's a strong, very strong admonition from Christ. And so the solution, and we'll conclude here, very simple. Remember, repent, and then just repeat. You gotta, you've got to remember. Remember the things that you did at first. Remember, therefore, where you've come from. Repent. Do the works you did at first. I, I hope that you have a, a way of remembering things. I hope you have good memories. Parents, I hope you're building great memories for your kids. 
so that then when they seem they, they seemingly get lost when they're 20 or 30 or 40, they'll come back to a time and say, no, I remember this. I remember this group of people. I remember my, my family. I remember my church. I remember the pastor. I remember the whoever it is. You have some great memories. You know this if you've ever been in a, uh, a relationship with a lover. You have all this passion. And when you have all this passion, you, have, you start building these great memories. You have your favorite song. You have your favorite place. You have your favorite saying. You have your favorite what, whatever it is. But that passion can easily sort of drain away. And what do you do to rekindle that? You go back. You remember. You play that favorite song. If I lose that passion with Nancy, man, I just put on the Commodores. That's what I do. I just, you know, it brings me right back to 1985, baby. And it just, it does something. You know this. You have a song. You have something. You have a favorite song here at Christ Community Church that just when you sing it and everybody sings it, you're like, yes, this is right. This is real. Why? Because you somehow we've prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I've gotten cold. My heart's getting like a stone. I need something to break that up. What's going to break that up? Some song. Some conversation with an old friend who, who's been faithful. Some memory that you go back to and it stirs it up and says, yes, that's right. So I'm hoping you're building that for yourself. You're building it especially for the children here at Christ Community Church. You're being that person for somebody else. That that person, you have that person for yourself. When I start getting some distance, I find my friend and say, help me. Can you help me remember and then you've got to repent. You can't just think about it. You've got to do something. Repent is turn around. You're moving in this direction. Go back. Turn around. Act on some way. You can't just think about it. You've got to do something. You've got to repeat those things you did at first. If, if you're ever in a relationship that gets in a rut, in the beginning it says, you know, you want a pattern. You want some stability. But then the pattern of stability becomes a rut. And and if you've ever been in a rut in any way, whether it's a relational rut or just your bicycle tire, to get out of that rut takes a lot of energy. You don't just wander out of the rut. It takes energy to get out of that place. So it's going to take some energy to do this. This is not something that's going to be easy for us to do. It's something, look at the word he uses, it's something you have to conquer. Now, of course, the real conquering is done by Christ. So we want to go back to the faith that we have in Christ. He's the one who is the fuel for that love that I had at the beginning. But it's going to take some energy. It's going to take some effort. So maybe today you're thinking, I've got to get back. I've got to get back into prayer. I've got to get back into the Bible reading. I've got to come to the, to the women's Bible study. I've got to get in a small group in the fall. I've, whatever that is that you feel like, I've, my, my heart's grown cold. And if I don't do something, if I don't remember and then act on it, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dry up. I'm going to be like this river, and all the vibrancy that I once had could grow cold. John Garner, this quote, one of the quotes on the bulletin from his book, No Easy Victories, he says this, Most ailing organizations, and you might say churches or people, 
have developed a functional blindness to their own defects. They're not suffering because they can't solve their problems, but because they won't see their problems. They look straight at their problems, rationalize them as either virtues or necessities. Jesus says at the end of this letter and the end of every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning, and boy, we know we're not the perfect church. And there, there are strengths at Christ Community Church, church, and there are weaknesses. There are strengths among your people here, and there are weaknesses. And my prayer is that we really would hear with our own ears and not hear with the ears for the church down the street or the person down the street. That you have come and you hold the light. You are the one who who holds it in his hands and you can decide what you want to do. And Lord, I am praying desperately that you would never remove the light of the gospel from Christ Community Church. We could still have people, we could still have programs We could be what looks like alive and be dead. We could have truth and have lost love, and all of that truth equals zero. So help us see. Help us hear. Help us remember, but then help us to act on that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.